The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we thank you that you are our Savior. We thank you that you're our God. And we thank you that all those who come to you by the merits of Jesus Christ, all those who come to you by the blood of Christ, that we become your children and that you are our God, and that you save us, that you forgive us, that you redeem us, that you, you make us in right relationship with you, Lord, and in right standing. And so, God, we thank you so much for our salvation. We thank you for the gospel. And, Lord, as we open your word tonight, I pray that you would help us to be obedient. And, Lord, I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to convict and to work in our hearts and our lives. And I pray that our time here would not be spent in vain. I pray that um, something that is profitable for eternity would be accomplished tonight. And Lord, we know that, that I can't do that, that there's nothing that I can say that would be helpful. Um, but Lord, I know that your word is powerful, the Holy Spirit is powerful and strong, and that he can accomplish your will tonight. And so God, that's what we pray for. We pray that Jesus Christ is glorified. We pray in your name. Amen. You be seated. If you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, We'll be in Acts chapter 5 in just a minute. I just want to say, guys at the back and Caitlin, good job. I messed something up in the song service tonight, and you guys didn't even notice, right? You didn't notice that there were some verses and stuff out of order. And those guys and Caitlin, you just covered it off like pros, so nice work. Acts chapter 5, we've been doing a little mini-series in the life of First Peter. And the goal is eventually to get to the book of not the life of First Peter. There's, <laughs> there's only one Peter. <laughs> it is um, it is in the life of Peter, the apostle, and we're eventually going to get to the book of First Peter. And what I've actually done, I don't know if you noticed this, but I, I've used this as a clever way for me to get back into the book of Acts. And so we've been in the book of Acts for the last few weeks, and we will be for probably a couple more weeks. I really do want to get to First Peter. I'm looking forward to that. But there's a few things about Peter's life that we see here in the book of Acts that are just so, so helpful. I love narratives in the Bible. I mean, I I know that we need doctrine, we need truth, we need Paul's letters to spell out exactly what is true, and then what we can do with those true statements is we can see in the narratives how God works out his plan and how those truths are put into action in people's lives. And so we get into the book of Acts, and we look at Peter's life, and we see so clearly how What Jesus said is true, what God said is true, what Paul said is true, what the Bible says is true, actually plays out in the life of Peter and in the life of disciples. And so, um, by God's help, that's what we'll see once again this evening. God's truth in action. And what's funny is, I think that all people love a good story. We all, just everybody, I mean, we love just a good book, a good story. And I don't know if you know this, but there are really only two types of stories out there. There is the comedy, and there is the tragedy, right? Now, we usually think of like, okay, there's, there's comedy, and that's just funny things, and there's tragedy, and that's when there's something really bad that happens. But what I mean by that is there's two types of narratives, and the two types of narratives, whether it's an action movie or a horror movie or whatever it is, story, um, there is the story where, where there are things that are all really good, and eventually go really bad, right? And that's the tragedy. Now, that can be told in a very funny way, but it's still a tragedy. And there's this story where things seem to be really bad, where everything's broken, where there's no relationship, and eventually things go really good, 
right? And that's the comedy. And most stories in our culture we recognize as comedies. We all like a good comedy because we all like it when the good guy wins in the end. Well, in the story we're going to be reading this evening, um, I think we already know that it fits into that category where there's difficulty at one point, but at the end of the story in Acts chapter 5, everything turns out well. But what we don't want to miss this evening as we think about this story and as we consider what the disciples were thinking and what they were going through is that while they were going through them, they didn't have the end of the chapter. Right? Halfway through this story, they didn't know exactly what God was going to do. So they can't look back at it. And in a very similar way, we don't know the end of our story. Right? We are in circumstances right now. We are going through our life right now. And there are some difficult things that we're facing. And we don't know how they play out. Right? We don't know what the final story is. And there are some really good things that we're facing or, or things that we have planned and we have in mind. And eventually some of those things might go bad. We don't know those things. And so what we need to do, what hopefully we'll be able to do as we study this, this chapter once again, is to do our best to see from God's perspective. And it's, it's not that we're, we're going to know the end of the story. By doing this God's perspective thing, we're not going to get the end. What we will get is that we can trust the one who knows the end from the beginning. Right? We can trust the author of the story. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 12. We covered Acts chapter 5, verse 12 to 32 a few weeks ago. And we're going to quickly go through these verses once again because it kind of tells the story. And then we'll cover about 10 more verses after that. Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, durst no man joined himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multiples, multitudes of both men and women insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and the couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. See, our story starts out really good, right? We have this small picture of the church, just a snapshot of what's happening in the church, and everything is positive. People are being healed. People are coming to know the Lord. There is just the story of Ananias and Sapphira has just passed, that just happened. And so the believers that come to know the Lord, they understand that there is a God that they should fear. And so there is this kind of, okay, I I don't want to join myself to these people because I'm afraid, but when you do, it's like I'm all in. Right? And it's very different than what we see in a lot of churches today. We see a lot of people who are just kind of cultural Christians, where they're in because it's, you know, okay, it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice community. It's a, it's a nice group to be a part of. And here we have this distinction, like people know that they are going to lose, and that they are going to have a new master, and that it's going to cost them something, but that they know that that God is so great, and the salvation is so wonderful, that they ought to follow it, that they ought to do it, that, that it is, is good. And so here we have a wonderful picture of the church. Verse 17. Then arose the high priest up, and all they that were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. 
and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Here's the part of the story where it seems like things go bad. Right? I mean, all this great is happening, but then all of the religious leaders, the most important people in all of Judea, right, in all of Israel, these people come and they arrest the apostles. Now, it would seem like maybe any influence they would have at this point has just, just died. I mean, the, religious, the, the, the elite people in Jerusalem say, these guys are telling lies, they're not telling the truth, we're going to arrest them, put them in prison. It seemed like that would be gone. And they no longer have a voice among the people. They're, they're in prison. And so things at this point seem really bad. But verse 819 says, But the angel of the Lord by night opened up the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. I want you to go back. This is what the angel of the Lord says. I want you to go back and do exactly the same thing that you were doing when you got arrested. You get that? So, so they were being obedient. They were arrested. They got led out of prison by an angel simply to go back and do the exact same thing that they were doing when they first got arrested. When they heard that, verse 21, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they found them not in the prison. They returned and told, saying, The prison truly we found shut with all safety. And the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. You know what's happening there? They, the, they call all the disciples to be brought before them. They send officers to go get them out of the prison. The, the Officers get there, and the prison is shut, and the keeper is there, but nobody's inside. So we come and bring word back, and now you have all of these religious elite, the the Sanhedrin, chief priests, and the council. All of these men are terrified because they don't know what's going to happen. right? They like to have things under control. They like to know the end from the beginning. And now God is clearly doing something, though they wouldn't say it was God. They just, they don't understand how, what's going to grow from this. And they like to be in control, like many of us do. And so now God is doing something that puts the, takes the control away from them, and he's showing who he is through these disciples. Verse 24. Sorry, 25. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the mystery is solved. What's, what's happened to these men that we shut up in the prison? They're back doing the same thing they were doing before. They're back in the temple teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel with people. Verse 26, And when the captain with the officers brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What an amazing statement that is. That the enemies of Christ now point at the disciples and say, didn't we tell you to stop talking about Jesus? But instead of stopping, you have filled this entire city with his name. All people know about him. All people know who he is and what he did. 
and you're intending to bring his blood upon us. And, and certainly they were culpable. They were responsible for the death of Jesus. They were the ones that brought him to the Romans and had him crucified. But what they're afraid of now is that they're actually going to be held responsible and maybe put to death themselves if people see that they killed an innocent man. And so here we have, once again, these men who are just so concerned with their perception, with what's happening to them, with their control, that they're not willing to see what God is doing. They're not willing to see what's so obvious to to us and to everyone who, who looks on these events that God is doing something amazing. He raised Christ from the dead, and now he's, he's let these guys out of prison, and he's healing people, and he's confirming that Christ is the Savior. And they're only worried about what's going to happen to them, how they're going to be perceived, what people will do to them. Verse 29, Peter gives an answer. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Can't really say a more true statement than that, can you? You ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. They say, we are witnesses of Christ, and we have the Holy Ghost inside of us that, are help, that is helping us Tell the story that if you come to Christ, you can see, receive repentance and forgiveness. Verse 33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart. See, here you have this, this conviction happening. Here you have them sensing that, that what has just been said requires some type of response from them. And so they are cut to the heart. And they took counsel to slay them. See, back in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches to the multitude, the people are cut to the heart. And do you know what they do? They say, what must we do to be saved? We see the truth now. What must we do to be saved? And here the people are cut to the heart. And rather than responding with, Christ is the Savior, what do I need to do to know him? They respond with, I'm going to kill the people who are talking about him. So they take counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. So this man named Gamaliel gets up. And and Gamaliel is one of the most well-known, popular uh, Pharisees who who have lived and certainly the most well-known popular Pharisee a predominant Pharisee at that time. He was a wonderful teacher of the law. He is known among Christians as the one who, who discipled Saul of Tarsus before Saul was converted. Right? And so during that time, he is not the chief priest. He is not one of the main members of the council, though he probably is a member of the council. But what he is, is he is the leader of the Pharisees, the most respected teacher of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees during this time were the most respected group among your average people in Israel, right? So, so Israel knew that the Sadducees are the ones who are in charge of the temple. They're the ones who are the priests. They're the ones who kind of control those things. And the Sadducees have a very close relationship with the Roman government. And so the Roman government allows them 
to control the temple and allows them to make a lot of these decisions for Israel. But the people don't respect the Sadducees like they respect the Pharisees. And so the Sadducees have to to keep this balance. They have to say, okay, yes, we're in charge, but everybody respects the Pharisees, so we kind of have to do what they want us to do sometimes. And so now the most prominent member of the Pharisees stands up and he says, listen, guys, I have something I want to say. Let's get the disciples out of here for a minute. Let's let's move them to the other room because I want to address you. And and Gamaliel is supposed to, is about to say one of the most wise things in the Bible. I mean, what he says here is just, it's just brilliant and it's helpful for us. And it's so strange to me that it comes out of the mouth of the person who trained Saul of Tarsus to be the, the Saul of Tarsus that he was before he met Christ. This is, again, just God being God. God being awesome, where he's, he's using this guy to bring wisdom to a situation. This guy is not a follower of Christ, and he is, he's a hater of what Christ is and what he stands for. And yet what he says here is brilliant and, I think, very helpful for us. He said unto them, verse 35, You men of Israel... Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee, in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. So he begins and he says, listen guys, can I remind you of two men? Both of these men were leaders. Both of these men claimed to be somebody, claimed to the Messiah, claimed to be a prophet. And they, they both had followers, 400 for Thutis. It, Judas had followers. But when he died, what happened? When they died, their followers scattered. There's no, nobody left. Now, we don't, in, in history, we don't have a record of this first guy named Thutis. But we do have a record of Judas, a man named Judas, who led a revolt, uh, a rebellion, and he considered himself to be a prophet or, or a messiah, and that was in about um, 6 AD. And so, what he's saying is, there is a historical record of these things happening. In the past, people have claimed to be from God, and when they die, their followers scatter. Their, their revolt, their rebellion, their whatever it was, it comes to naught. It's, it's done. Now let's see, based on that history, what Gamaliel says. He says, now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone, leave them alone. For if this counsel is a work that be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. You cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. What incredible wisdom is there. And what an encouragement for us. What encouragement for Christians of all time. Right? If this is something that is started by man, if this is just based on one man who is not who he claims to be, who is not the Messiah, who is not God incarnate in the flesh, then the revolt, it will die. But if it is of God, then no man, no person, no group, no king, no ruler, no matter how powerful they seem to be, no matter how many people seem to agree with them, will ever overthrow it if it's of God. 
And what will happen is, the people who thought they were fighting against these believers of Christ, these small, maybe unimportant, maybe weak-seeming believers, will actually be found to be fighting against the God of heaven. And that's what's happening in the world. You realize that? I mean, that's what's happening since the birth of Christianity, that people have tried to destroy it and just tried to destroy the followers of Christ, and they thought it would be easy. It makes sense it's easy. You have a group of people who are supposed to love their enemy, right? And yet what happens time and time again is people find themselves fighting against God, and Christianity prevails, and the gospel goes out. And so Gamaliel is just brilliant here, and I believe his words are encouraging to us. Because if what we're following is of God, then no person will ever overthrow it. Verse number 40. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So you see what they do? They bring them in and says they beat them, right? We talked about it this a few weeks ago. This wouldn't have been just a, a smack on the hand. Okay? They would have been whipped 39 times. And, I mean, the law was very clear that if, if somebody was to be whipped and the person that whipped them was to kill them in the process, that person was not culpable. Meaning that a lot of times people that went through this process ended up dying from their wounds. So, so they were beaten very severely. And after they were beaten, they were commanded again not to teach and to preach in Jesus' name, and then they were let go. And so this is where kind of the, the story, it seems to come to a good end, but, but here's one of the most wonderful parts about the story, because it, it's the, the attitude, the thought process of the disciples that's so amazing to us. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer shame. So those things seem to be very polar opposites, don't they? On the one hand, we talk about shame, we talk about humiliation, we talk about being brought low, being um, put down, being persecuted, right? being beaten. I mean, that process is not a fun process. You get... Um, 26 whips on the back from here to the back of your legs, and then 13 on the front, that wouldn't be a a very nice thing to go through. It's humiliating. And these men are privileged. They're honored. They can't believe that they've been counted worthy to go through this shame, and it's all because of who they see Christ to be. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they see him for who he is, and because they see him for who he is, they say, anything I have to go through in his name is a privilege for me. If believers today would just get a little bit excited about the Savior that they serve, and a little bit of understanding about what it is to serve the King of Kings, what a privilege we have, what an honor it is, maybe we wouldn't gripe and complain so much when we say, it might mean some persecution. there, There might be some difficulty along the road. Yes, there should be. (laughs) Look forward to that. Because you'll be worthy to suffer shame just like they were. And then we kind of get a recap of what's going on in verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. They go back out and they do what they've been called to do. They don't stop teaching and preaching the name of Christ, even after they're commanded by the most important people in Israel to stop speaking his name, all they need, all they do, because they are his witnesses and they've been empowered by the Holy Ghost to do it, they go out and they preach and teach 
in the name of Christ. What a wonderful story. What an what a incredible example that they set for us. And as, as I thought about this story, I, I know a few weeks ago we just kind of focused on the one thing that we can learn from them, and that is to obey God rather than men. But I, I thought a lot about this story after I preached that, and I thought, you know what, there's something here about God that I think can encourage and motivate us in that way. Um, so here are some, I want to give you really quickly, some f- four ruminations or four thoughts about the story we just read and how the story we just read might apply to our story today, to our lives today. And we'll spend most of our time probably in the first one, so don't get concerned if, if we take a little bit of time in the first one and then there's three more, okay? Number one, the story isn't over. In your life today, I want you to realize this. The story isn't over. I was on Facebook this week, and I saw this, this story about a man, and I, it's probably not a true story, but it was a man who was, who was deserted on an island, and everything had been wrecked, and he, you know, he had nothing. And, and he had no way of contacting anybody, no way of getting back, no way of, of getting help. And so what happened is he decided to build himself this, this hut, and so he finally took all this work to, to do what he could with, you know, he didn't really have any tools, so he, he builds this hut, and he's so proud of this hut, and he goes off to try and, try and get some food, he comes back, and the hut's on fire. I mean, he, he apparently was foolish enough to light his fire too close to the hut. So the, the hut burns up. The hut's gone. And so, I mean, he's devastated. He thinks, how could, how could this happen? I mean, I, how could I be stranded and then go through all this work just to lose everything again? And then... So he, he goes to bed that night just weeping. The next morning, he's woken up by a person who was there. He said, how did you ever find me? And they said, well, we saw your smoke single, signals, right? And, and, I mean, that's probably not a true story, but it does illustrate a point, right? And that is, the guy thought he had lost everything. And yet the thing that, that he thought was devastating and, and horrible was the thing that was used to bring help. And can I tell you something? In all of our stories, there is a halfway point where the present circumstance seems terrible and there's really no hope in the future. It's kind of where we all get at at different times. We're not all at the same place, right? That's One of the beautiful things about the church is that we can actually see where other people are and and look around and, and learn and grow from them. But... There is a point in our lives where we say, I don't, I don't know what God is doing now. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I don't know why this happened to me. I don't know why this, this sickness or this, this loss has happened to me. I don't know where I'm going to get my job. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I don't even know what's going to happen in the future. Like I can't even envision this working out in a good way. So we get to this point and we must realize that the story isn't over. You think about every person that God used in the Old Testament. You think about every person, Noah, halfway through 50 years of building the ark, now he's halfway through building a boat on dry land when it's never rained before. And everybody around him is thinking, this guy's crazy, and telling him that, making fun of him. And he's only halfway through building it, right? I mean, can you imagine what point he could have got to when he's halfway through building a boat on dry land when it's never rained? And you know the end of the story. Think about Abraham. He leaves his home. He leaves his family. 
and he's in the middle of nowhere, not knowing where he's supposed to go. There's potential enemies all around him. He's 90 years old, and he doesn't have a child yet. And he's clinging to this promise that he's going to have land and children and blessing. Well, I mean, how do you be in that circumstance halfway through that story and say, God, you promised these things, and I have no land, I have no home, I don't have children. I'm way too old to have them. Where is this blessing going to come from, God? And halfway through the story, his story looked grim. I think the, maybe one of the greatest examples of, of this is Joseph. Right? You think of Joseph's life, he's from the pit to slavery to a dungeon. And even when things in, in Joseph's life seem like they were going to turn out better, it's like, oh, I, I see the light. All of a sudden, that is killed as well. And all of a sudden, all, hey, there's these guys, and, and I, I interpreted the dream for them, and they can just go back, and, and the one guy, he can, he can tell my story, and he can help me out. And then it's like, and the guy forgets about him, right? You get partway through a story where he's in the dungeon, and he's saying, God, what was that dream all about? That dream of, of the sheaths bowing down to me, that doesn't make any sense here. I can't see the end of the story. And halfway through, things look bad. Moses, from royalty to a fugitive in a matter of moments. And then the, the people that he stood up for, even those people hate him. And so now he's in the desert all alone. In, in just days, I mean, goes from this important person in royalty to nobody in a desert hated by everybody. Halfway through the story, things look bad. If we were to, to go through everybody, I mean, we go through David's story, on the run for his life, not welcome in his own country, and he's supposed to be the king. Nothing seems to make sense. Every one of the prophets sent by God to help the people, to warn the people, and all of them hated by the people. And all of them scorned and mocked and laughed at, and many of them persecuted. It just doesn't make sense. And then we look at the story before us, and we see guys who are doing what they're supposed to be. They're being obedient, and they're cast into prison. It's like, God, what's going on? Oh, you're going to let them out. Okay. Uh, but then they get arrested again, and then they get beaten. And you go partway through the story, what's, what's going on here, God? And yet we see that the story isn't over. The story isn't over. And, and do you know what I think that the disciples, maybe what I think Peter was thinking about as he was going through this, I think he thought back to when Jairus' daughter was dead and said, okay, she was dead, but the story wasn't over. And Lazarus was dead for three days and his body stunk, but the story wasn't over. And the man was blind for 40 years, but the story wasn't over. And the lame man couldn't walk. But the story wasn't over, right? And, and the boat was in this storm, and it was definitely going to sink. And Christ was dead in the tomb, and he was crucified, and all of our hopes were dashed. But the story wasn't over. Did you get this? The story wasn't over. And so he can look back at that, and we can look back at their story, and we, can, we, can, we have the word of God that points us to time and time again that says, listen, God's people, when you're obedient, it will be difficult, and you will suffer. But the story isn't over. Apparent defeat simply meant that the fat lady had not yet sung. <laughs> Number two, the good guys always suffer. So when we're going through this story, and you're, you're wondering what Christianity is going to be like, understand that there will be suffering. In every story we've mentioned, the good guys have suffered. 
And I'm not trying to make light of suffering. I'm not trying to act like it, it doesn't mean anything. It's just going to happen, so no big deal. It, it absolutely is important. And, and I understand that as I look out in our congregation, and I think about people in our church, and I know some of their stories, that I haven't suffered in ways like you've suffered. I know my own life, and I, I mean, I have, certainly we've all gone through some suffering, but I have never lost somebody that was very, very close to me. Right? I mean, I've never lost somebody, I guess, way before their time. Uh, and so I haven't gone through maybe some of the devastating tragedy but, that others in this room have gone through. But I do know that, that God's plan, what he does often with his most choice servants, is that they go through devastating suffering. They go through the, the darkest trials. That God leads them through the valley of the shadow of death. The truth is, God leads us through suffering because he is more concerned about our spiritual growth than our physical comfort. Right? And we are very concerned with the here and now, and we're very concerned with, with knowing the end from the beginning. We, we want to know. But God looks down from his throne, from outside of time, from knowing the end of the beginning, and he says it's better for you to go through this than for you not to go through it and to not grow. And so you go through it, and God uses it in your life for something wonderful. But the, the truth is, good people go through suffering. Number three, there is a joyful end for those who love God and do as well. And so you will go through suffering. But we can cling to this promise that, there, that we have a God who is doing things that are for his good, for our good and for his glory. Right? It's important that we understand that if we go through suffering, and as we go through the suffering, we love God and we try and do his will, that there is a purpose, a redeeming purpose, a wonderful purpose that will ultimately bring greater joy because of that suffering. Now, I don't want us to get this wrong because there is an important modifier in this statement. I'm not saying that there is a joyful end for every person who ever suffers. That isn't true, right? So it is important that we get that when we go through suffering, we need to be loving God and to try, being trying to do his will. And as we do that, we can be assured that God is bring, going to bring something beautiful from what we see as very painful and difficult. What landed the disciples in this difficulty they were experiencing was their obedience. And the difficulty continued because of their obedience. And their attitude throughout this was not to question their suffering and not to wonder why it happened, but was to rejoice that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And listen, this is, this is a very difficult thing to go through difficulty and to say, I love Christ and I know he's doing something good. But this is something that should separate believers from unbelievers. I mean, we should be able to say, I go through the suffering, and I don't know why, but I do know who's taking me through it. I know the author of the story. Jason Gray wrote a song that said, Nothing is wasted. It says, Nothing is wasted, nothing is wasted. In the hands of our Redeemer, nothing is wasted. And so when we think about our broken hearts and our darkness and our loneliness and the chaos and the pain that we experience, we can know that in the hands of our Redeemer, as we strive to love him and to do his will, none of those tears and none of that pain and none of that suffering is wasted. Jerry Bridges said, 
That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings or allows it to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and for our good. We can go through suffering in a different way than other people do. We can know, we can take solace in the fact that we have a God who's taking through suffering for a good purpose. Number four, I think it follows all those other things. The author of our story can be trusted. If you kind of walk away with just this one thing, I'd be happy. The author of our story can be trusted. We should obey God rather than men. And we say amen to that. We should obey God rather than men. But why? Because man can't be trusted. Because we can't be trusted. Because only one that can be trusted. Because the only one that has the power to be fully trustworthy is God. Do you get that? Even if I make promises to you, even if I have the very best intentions, I have no power to keep those promises. But God does. So the only person that we can fully trust is God. And he's the author of our story, and so our author can be trusted. Man's work will fail. God's work always prevails. You get that? Leave these guys alone. Leave them alone. Why? Because if it's a work of man, it will fail. It will come to naught. But if it's God's work, it will never fail, and you'll find yourself fighting against God. And that's just the God that we serve. He, he is the author, and there's nothing... It, it, he's not going to get caught off guard by what you're going through. He's got a plan in all of it. This is huge for us if we learn to trust the author of the story, and, we, and if we get that... We don't need to worry about what's happening in chapter 4. We don't need to worry as much about what's going on when we're in the middle of it because we know the one who's written the end. And we know he's good. And we know he's powerful. Matt Chandler said, Trying to figure out God is like trying to catch, catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. All right. You're not going to figure it all out. And we're not going to know the end from the beginning. We know we can trust God through it. Many of us grew up listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. I remember when I was a kid, there were times that I missed the bus because I just had to know the rest of the story. Right? He, he was on his little thing, and it was like, it's so good. So he takes this story that is a very well-known story, and he gives you all the information that kind of completes it, and it makes, it's just the rest of the story. It's fascinating to hear. And so we, we, like Paul Harvey, we always want to know the rest of the story. Here is the truth. Our story is not over. We will suffer, but there is a joyful end for all those who love God and do his will, and we can trust the author of the story. And if we get those things, then yes, we're always going to want to know the rest of the story, but we can at least rest in the fact that we know who's writing it. We don't know the rest of the story yet. Um, we like to know, we like to be in control, and we like to, to figure things out, but none of us can plan for our lives, R- really. I mean, we're all way more helpless than we like to believe. So we must trust the author of the story. Romans eight twenty eight, well-known verse, and we know 
that all these things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. So you love him and you seek to do his will. And you can rest in the fact that all things work together for good. You trust Christ with your eternal soul. So let's trust him for tomorrow. Let's trust him for today. Let's trust him for every day of the week. It's one of those messages where, I mean, how do you you just get up and go out and do this? You know, it's not just this tangible, but this is a change of, of our minds. That rather than focusing on our trouble, rather than focusing on our circumstance, we set our gaze upon the one who has everything in control, and we say, I'm willing to go through anything because you are so awesome. So that's my prayer tonight. We leave this place and we say, Christ, I am willing I'd count it a privilege to suffer for your name. Let's pray.